Boardwalk Audio Podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson, and we've got a great episode. But first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the Support Our Artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. This week, you should buy a book because our guest is Nate Dern, a senior writer at Funny or Die, another former artistic director at the UCB Theater, and the author of the recently released, and by recently, I mean yesterday, book of comedy essays called Not Quite a Genius. Nate's a really funny guy. I'm really excited to read his book, and it was cool to talk to an author on the eve of a book release. So here is Nate Dern. Uh, Nate, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Evergreen, Colorado. Okay. Small town in the mountains of beautiful Colorado. Oh, what was that like living in a small town? It was great. I really miss it. I uh, yeah, if I could try to pursue comedy in the mountains of Colorado rather than <laughs> Los Angeles or New York City, I would definitely do it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, did you were you into comedy at all at a young age? I was, yeah. I Very early on, my mom let me stay up on Saturday nights to watch Saturday Night Live, and I just loved that. Um, so grew up obsessed with SNL. And then I also, by middle school, I remember the uh, our local paper, the Canyon Courier, came to our school and like did a little profile where they're interviewing different students, and they asked a bunch of different students who their hero was. And every single student they profiled said their parents, except for me. And I said Robin Williams. <laughs> uh, so I, I think because of uh, Mork and Mindy reruns on Nick, right. Nick at Night or something. So I was already obsessed with him. So yeah, from pretty early on, I loved, I loved comedy. But I didn't realize it was what I wanted to do until later. That's so weird that everyone said their parents. I know. Yeah, I guess you just can't think of some, like another good answer. <laughs> yeah, weird. Uh, so when you were in middle school and high school, were you doing any like comedy stuff? I did in in um, in high school. I did a uh, I did like comedy. I found weird ways to do comedy. So like I was in a uh, a Drive Smart volunteer program where we would go to the go to younger kids and tell them to like wear their seatbelt. And how we would do it is by putting on silly skits where we'd get specifics about <laughs> okay. like basically like short form improv but that had a moral lesson uh and then i also did student government um and my favorite part of that was the assemblies where we'd basically just recreate like a scene from wayne's world and then substitute in specifics from our high school so i, was, oh, I wow. wasn't doing explicitly comedy uh but then finding ways to do it um and i was also on the school the student paper and once a year, we would do a satire issue, and that was always my favorite. So we were basically just trying to, you know, be the onion, but for our school. What, what did you have any like favorite articles from uh, from doing that? Um, I think like uh, I wrote one like treating a spill, like a coke spill on the rug in the hallway, like that was a really big industrial accident. Okay. Accident. So that was. I thought that was pretty clever at the time. <laughs> it seems like the onion would kind of. It seems onion-esque. Yeah, they might do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so where'd you go to college? I went to Harvard okay. and graduated in 2007. Were you, were you doing like uh, any of the comedy stuff there? 
I did uh, improv at Harvard. I went was was in a group called the Immediate Gratification Players, uh, which has alumni like Nick Stoller, the uh, writer director of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, right. and some other stuff. And then I also I tried to get into the Harvard Lampoon every single semester that I was eligible to try, and I never got in. So I I'm not funny, I guess. Oh wow! <laughs> do you, do you know like uh, why you didn't get in? Just in like material? Um, yeah, I guess not. They, uh, <laughs> it was a hard process. They called it comping, so you had to go like once or twice a week. You would sit on the floor of the of the one entryway that the Harvard Lampoon castle allowed. Uh, non-members to be inside of and then you would there was like a comp director who you'd sit in a line quietly with all the other people trying to get in and the comp director the comp director would quietly read your piece in front of everyone else so you'd just be sitting there for like hours waiting to get feedback and then he or she usually he would give you you know some notes like well this isn't funny because of this It it was mostly it was like they had a lot of rules about what not to do so they're like they wanted their nothing topical because they wanted their humor to be classic and don't mix high and low because that's too easy. And like they had a bunch of rules about what not to do, but it was hard to figure out what they were looking for, at least for me. Is, is the Lampoon like was it actually funny? Would you say it was um, it was hit or miss? But like so while I was there, they, they wouldn't put author names. They would just put the author's initials. And while I was there, uh, Simon Rich was older than me. Okay, and yeah. so his initials SR, you could I would kind of scan it looking for his initials because his were always good um zach kanan was also there who's he's gone on to write for snl and Mm. new yorker cartoons and now detroiters on comedy central and his were he like did cartoons at the time and his were always really funny um so that you kind of found like a few people who are who who you thought were funny i'd always read it though cover to cover and you know be mad like they let these people in but not me <laughs> you know 10 years later still got a chip on my shoulder but <laughs> yeah if, if they asked you to come by to harvard and give a speech would you do it i would i would say yes and then i would try to sabotage from within so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but don't tell anyone <laughs> keep that between us uh so you're doing improv was that your first first time doing improv really it was yeah and i wasn't planning on doing it in college i just uh, I went to a show the, like the first week of freshman year, basically because I I met a girl at an ice cream social that I was trying to impress, and so I was just <laughs> looking for something like a date to go on. So I suggested an improv show because I'd seen a flyer for it or something. And then as the improv show was happening, my interest went from the girl to the show, where I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, this is amazing! Like, I want to be these people's friends. How'd they do this?" So after the show, I went. And like geeked out and was waiting to talk to the members like they're rock stars like wow that was so great how do I be a part of this and then they were you know they did it to have auditions later that week so auditioned and then that became my like favorite thing I did in college so did you guys um, was it just kind of your group working like on your own or would you have like a coach or something we would have a self-appointed leader who we would wow. call a czar a director oh so my we were gosh. self-coaching um, we would and we would practice twice a week for three hours each time. So we spent so much time doing it, and then would do shows. We would occasionally go do a workshop, like at Improv Boston or the Improv Asylum, um, or bring someone in. Um, but by and large, it was like kind of self-taught. We would also go to UCB New York like once a year, 
And from what we watched there, we would try to like reverse engineer, like, okay, mm. remember that scene? That was funny for this reason, so let's try to do a scene like that. We would <laughs> try to piece it together. Do you, do you remember what shows you saw at UCB New York? I, de- I, re- I think we saw The Swarm, which was an okay. early Herald team, and I only say that because I remember Billy Merritt was in the show. So I assume by the timeline it would have been The Swarm, um, because I remember him wearing a Hawaiian shirt and cargo shorts, and he's just this big big guy so I remember him being really funny and it probably would have been like Michael Delaney and some other people mm-hmm. in it as well but I, def- I specifically remember Billy Merritt mm-hmm. so after uh, you graduate are you thinking uh, go to New York and do more comedy stuff go to UCB yeah basically be- so doing improv at the start of college didn't realize I wanted to do comedy but slowly over the course of college it was a realization of like huh well this is my favorite thing to do so why should I stop doing it maybe I should keep doing it and basically just because by chance we had been to New York for those annual shows to see UCB it was on my radar as like well there's at least one place I could keep going to do it and I was very naive about like I didn't even really consider Chicago or LA um, or even think about like other career prospects it was literally just like well there's a place where adults are doing this thing that I love so I'm going to go there and try to do it with them and try to make that my new home base for comedy so uh when you started taking classes did you find like oh this is still like what i want to do and this is even like a better situation maybe yeah i i loved it right away i think i I actually remember so i really loved at at ucb new york they have uh weekly shows that on the weekends that they would call the weekend teams which are kind of like the major leagues and then during the week they had herald night uh, which is kind of like the minor leagues of the people who have j- more, more recently completed classes. Some of them have been doing it for years, but that's basically the the hierarchy. And I actually, and the weekend teams have more freedom with the format they can do, as well as like ASCAT on Sunday night, which is like the all-star show of all the best of the best from the theater. Um, and I love the weekend shows. I loved ASCAT. <laughs> this is like sacrilegious to say, but when I would first go to Herald Night, I wouldn't really get it because I didn't really know the Herald structure. And people would, like, laugh at a second beat, like, because people who had taken classes would appreciate the art that they were doing, whereas I was like, what's happening? Like, yeah. and I actually, at, for a little bit, I was like, all these people drink the Kool-Aid. This isn't funny. Why are they laughing? <laughs> this is, like, and I felt, I wanted to keep studying it to understand why why everyone else was laughing and why I didn't get it. And eventually I, I came to appreciate Harold Knight and love it too. But my first reaction was like, oh, I don't like this as much as the other stuff. <laughs> uh, what teachers did you have at UCB? My first teacher was Bobby Moynihan uh, oh, wow. and Charlie Todd of Improv Everywhere. And Kevin Hines, Zach Woods, Shannon O'Neill, Sylvia Ozuls, Doug Moe, Michael Delaney, Will Hines, Anthony King, and then a few other ancillary classes on the side. But that was my like primary lineup in that order. A lot of great teachers. A lot of great teachers. Learned a lot. Do you uh, do you remember any uh, moments from like that where you like it really clicked for you? Yeah, uh, Bobby Moynihan in one hundred and one. I remember he was a great one hundred and one teacher because he was so enthusiastic and aff- affirming, which is like just what you need in early on in improv when you're kind of nervous about it. And I remember one time I was doing a scene where he laughed. And he said, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen, which I'm sure he like <laughs> says a lot, but it in the moment it felt so true and real just because he was so earnest and it, that like that kept me going for a long time. you know if you just get like some teacher early on to give you encouragement, 
um, Zach Woods in 301 called me a brain, I remember, because okay. I did like a whatever, like <laughs> highbrow cerebral scene. And he might not even have meant it as a compliment, but I remember <laughs> him calling me a brain. I was like, wow, this guy's really smart. So if, <laughs> so if he thinks I'm a brain, I must be doing okay. Um, so those were uh, specific moments where I mm-hmm. felt like good affirmation. Um, I learned a lot from Kevin Hines in 201, which in, in UCB is like game. And that's when it kind of clicked for me. Like, oh, I think this is the thing for me. Because I, I was also concurrently taking classes at the Magnet Improv Theater. And in 201, you really kind of learn what the UCB's strategy is. And at that point, I realized, like, oh, this, this works well with my brain, like how I think about comedy. Interesting. Uh, were you taking sketch classes at the time, too? I did. I also did the whole sketch curriculum. Um, studied with Eric Drysdale multiple times, mm-hmm. who was an old Colbert writer. Um, and a few other sketch classes, too. What, what were the sketch classes like back then? Because I'm sure it's a lot different now. Yeah, this is, I, yeah, like, caveat is that I'm talking about the curriculum, yeah, like, 10 years ago. So, it, yeah. And it has changed since then, for sure. Um it uh, basically, I think any writing class. I've also since then I've also taken some like short story classes and some other writing classes. And I think the utility of any writing class is that it gives you a deadline, and then you get feedback on your work, and then whatever other exercises or lessons you go over, I think are kind of uh, secondarily helpful just to that, to having the deadlines and doing the work. Um, but yeah, it would be like one class you would do topical sketches and you would all get assigned that and then you would read them in class and then the teacher would give notes and you would you know it usually feels the most beneficial to get notes on your own sketch but then it's also it can be helpful to like hear the notes that are given to other people so you can kind of internalize that and apply it to your own work going Mm -hmm. forward yeah i say that sounds exactly like it is today okay (laughs) (laughs) good are uh, you taking classes right now? Yeah, I finished uh, 201 a couple months ago. And I'm waiting for a 301. 201 sketch? Yeah. Who was your teacher? Uh, Beth Appel. So she was great. Yeah. The current artistic director yeah, the of current. the Upright Citizens Brigade <laughs> Theater Los Angeles. Uh, that was you, a job I had in New yeah. York. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get to it. <laughs> uh, you were on a, a mod team, right? I was. That was my first house team. I was on a mod team called Thunder Gulch. And was that uh, back when they did the... Was it writers and actors together, or were you... It was after that, so they had split it up. Uh, There was a few writer-actors, but it was mainly you were either a writer or an actor. So at that time, I was an actor. So why why did you go for being an actor rather than a writer? Um, I I had applied for both, I think, the previous audition cycle, and I didn't get either when I had applied, because I think more people submit than they have room for auditions for, and then you don't really hear about your sketch packet so I had applied for both and hadn't heard anything and then it was in between audition cycles when someone I actually forget who like someone moved on like left the city or something and so I got their spot Uh, so Anthony King who was the artistic director at the time just called me up and asked me if I wanted to be an actor on a team I think I must have been and I I was probably in an improv class of his right then um, an advanced study called we used to call them 600s. I forget what they call them now. Advanced, advanced study performance, maybe, um, called Tiny Town that he was teaching. Uh, so he put me put me on it from that. So if you if you didn't get that call and you're going to audition again, were you going to do the same thing as audition for both? Yeah, I think I I had a a strategy of 
I just really wanted to be a part of a theater. So actually at this time, I had already auditioned for the, uh, I think it was called the Gotham Comedy Club. And I was on the Gotham Comedy Club short form improv team called the Red Tie Mafia. Because in my mind, I was like, I just want to have some home base. I want to be like on an official comedy team at some theater or club. Um, So I was just trying to like work my way up. So I would have said yes to any offer. (laughs) Uh, as an actor, what's like a typical like mod cycle for you? Like one month of mod. Yeah, uh, it was really fun to be on a mod team as an actor. You know, the writers meet first typically, and sometimes the actors are invited to that meeting, and sometimes they're not. I think it depends on the team, or maybe they've changed how they do it. Um, and maybe as an actor, you have an idea like, hey, like this topic is funny to me, or I can do this impression, or I can do this character, like maybe something around that. But I think most of the time, it comes from the writers, like they have an idea they want to do and then the writers kind of cast it out. Um, so you'll go to a read through early in the month after the writers have, um, you know, their ideas have been greenlit by their coach or director. And then they, uh, they cast, cast it out during a read through and you kind of are feeling out the parts and then you start to get off book and then hopefully are off book for a dress rehearsal before the final show and do a tech rehearsal do the show and, uh, hope you remember all your lines. (laughs) Uh, when you, when you get a sketch as an actor, what do you look for immediately? I I think I just try to understand what's funny about it. So like, what was the writer going for? What's funny about this sketch? And then w- then second to that, like, what's my role? So in you know, am I the straight man or am I the unusual mm. character? How do I service what's funny about the sketch? Mm. Uh. All right, so in 2011, you became the artistic director at UCB. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that happen? Um, so Anthony King was the former artistic director, and he, he had done it for six or seven years, and he announced that he was moving on. Um, and, yeah, I just loved UCB, and I wanted to be... At that time, I was on a Herald team called Sandino, and I think I just wanted to be as much a part of UCB as I could. I wanted I wanted a job that was in comedy, Um and so I sent an email to Anthony saying like that I'd be interested in applying for it if there was if they were going to do an open call and he said that they were so he you know he would let me know and then they announced the if people wanted to submit for the job they could so I submitted and then it was a few rounds of interviews uh, and previous to that some other some folks at the theater and I had kind of talked about it abstractly like would it be something you'd want to do so I'd kind of been thinking about it for like six months to a year maybe and I tried to direct a few shows in that time to try to to increase my directing experience Mm. Uh, as like artistic (laughs) director you had to choose like uh, mod teams what would you look for like in packets when you were uh, deciding that yeah one of the artistic director jobs yeah was setting the teams for the house sketch teams and the house uh, improv teams for Harold and Mod. Um, so you collect a lot of sketch packets. I think the most important thing is just, um, well, obviously like technical proficiency, like can this person, do they understand what UCB style game is? And then can they competently execute a sketch like that? That's just a baseline. You have to be able to do that. If you can't do that, then I would usually just stop reading the packet. Like uh, they're just not ready yet. But then, so a lot of people can do that. So a lot of people are in that ballpark. And then what separates people at that point is just original voice, I think. Or is this person going to bring something interesting and unique to a writer's room that will elevate the whole team? Um, 
so like year to year you'd get a lot of it's funny like what's in the zeitgeist and you get a lot of the same ideas and sometimes that's not your fault if you (laughs) come up with an idea that a lot of other people do but it kind of can be a sign of maybe like not as original as someone else you know or doing like first thought rather than third thought for a topic so i remember one year for example (laughs) um oh what was the exact premise it was like three different sketches had the premise of it was like someone wanted to get or like protesting someone who wanted an abortion but the child they had was the antichrist Uh, so so it was like the protesters were like it was like a moral dilemma for them because they're like ooh we're against abortion but also it's the antichrist so we don't want the antichrist to like so like a rosemary's baby meets abortion protest and one year and that's like not a bad premise but one year I remember like three different (laughs) sketches had that premise somehow so I don't know what was in the zeitgeist that uh, season that brought that about um but yeah, if it's like if it was something that seemed orig- like an original voice that felt fresh, because after reading a bunch of packets, they can kind of it can start to be a slog. So anything that would stand out from that um, would be just kind of a fun breath breath of fresh air. Like, oh, this person's funny. Like they would help a team by being in the room with them. I'm sure even that though, there's still a lot of people who can who do that. So is, was there even like. Would it get even harder, like, near the end when you're really trying to decide? Yeah, absolutely. If it was, then for me, if it did, like, if we did, you know, at the very last pile, we've got a pile of, like, you know, 10 or 15 packets we feel really good about, but we only have slots for six new writers or something, then I would go, at that point, to, like, break the tie, I would go to teacher recommendations a lot of the time, or, like, we have you know, class notes. Mm -hmm. So if everything else, the packet was always first, like it, uh, if the packet was out of the, out of the park funny, even if their teacher notes were just okay, as long as there's no like red flags, like this person's an asshole, uh, you know, that would stand above all the rest. But yeah, two packets basically equal. Um, but one of them, but one of them also had stellar recommendations. And one of them was like, this person is helpful in class and gave, gave useful notes to other people and was respectful and, you know, is a good worker. Like, that would that would uh, help in their favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of uh, deciding who gets on a team, you had to actually like, form the teams. Yes. Would there be, like, uh, what was, like, your method for doing that? Yeah, it was... Sometimes it just... Um, it would be, like... There would only be so many slots available, and if we knew we were keeping a whole team together, it would just be, like, well, who would complement this team and sometimes it's a matter of like whose voice is similar to this team already so if there was a team that had a very distinct voice um, sometimes you want something that fits with that but then other times you want something that complements it that maybe is different and bringing something that they don't have Um, and then otherwise it's like trying to bring I, I remember I thought a lot about like people of the same generation so if there were newer writers I I think a lot of times I like to put them on the same team, kind of thinking they would have similar levels of uh, like sort of enthusiasm and things. Like sometimes if you have a mix of like newer people who are like, yeah, let's meet every night, let's practice every day, and then some more veterans who, not not to say they're checked out, but maybe they're a little more jaded, that can like, or they just have other priorities, that can be a, it doesn't mesh as well. 
So tried to put people together who had been in like the scene, whatever that means, for about the same amount of time. Um, some of it then like a little bit thought about things like, well, this person's more premisey and this person's more character and this person's more topical and trying to have a mix of that. Uh, tried to have gender balance with writers whenever possible, which I think I achieved uh, by the end. Um, other things like that, like just does will this team have a nice balance? And, and you also had to break up teams. So how would you? Uh, what, what what problems have you seen sketch teams that would then lead to them dissolving? Yeah, if um, sometimes being the artistic director was a little bit like being the the mom or the dad of the theater, where people would go to you with complaints, like you know, so and so is not sharing, uh, <laughs> so and so is not playing nice. So if a team had more of those like a disproportionate amount than another team that would usually be like all right let's take a look what's going on here is it just one personality who's causing a lot of problems or is there like bad chemistry overall um so that would be just like that would call my attention to one team to kind of investigate uh then also just looking at the shows like try to see as many shows as you can and so if one team consistently isn't getting as many laughs as another team or like the show, if it, if it, it never felt like a team wasn't trying, like I, from my experience, teams always wanted to put on a good show. Like that's where they were doing it. You know, we're not getting paid to do mod night and it's a lot of work. So no one was there. No one was really like phoning it in in my, from my experience. <laughs> so it was more a matter of like, is this working? Um, and sometimes it was just trying to like, uh, maybe after a team had been together for a long time, even if they were a good team, wanting to kind of just mix things up and get a fresh start. So re- more of like retiring a team rather than saying like, I'm breaking this team I up see. for yeah. disciplinary reasons or something. <laughs> more just like, yeah, you've done a good job and now let's try something new. Something I've always wondered about UCB artistic directors is that you start off as just like comedians and then all of a sudden you have this like huge responsibility to the theater and yeah. you're doing a lot of stuff that's not comedy. Right. Uh, did you find that to be like a weird thing or like a difficult thing to keep going? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, um, I also felt like guilty about doing my own comedy while I was doing mm-hmm. it because there's just, um, right when I started, there were two, th- a second theater opened in New York right. too. So it just felt like. On, on any given night, I couldn't possibly see all the shows that I was supposed to see because ideally you'd be at every show like watching and being able to give feedback or making adjustments. And it was just like physically Im- impossible. Um, so, yeah, I felt pursuing my own comedy. I felt kind of guilty, like, well, I really should be uh, doing something for the theater. So it was kind of a push and pull with that. Uh, and then also just because I'm an insecure person, you know, once you're artistic in my mind once you're artistic director it's like well you're supposed to be a comedy expert so if I ever did like a character at a show or an open mic and I was anything less than extremely funny then it was like I was worried I was you know projecting that the audience would be like this guy's our leader he's a he's not funny at all so I was like scared to even do anything and I think it kind of infected my improv for a while where I was worried about doing improv incorrectly um yeah, so it was uh, that part was hard. Would you go to like uh, Harold Night and Mod Night every week? I tried to go as much as I could. Yeah. I didn't go every week. I tried to see like every other Mod Teams show, for example, um, and with two teams paired together, you know, I'd kind of like mix it up when I'd go. Um, yeah, try to go as much as I could. 
Uh, and so you left uh, UCB Artistic Director to go to Funny or Die, is that right? I had Yeah, I had the job for three years, and I actually, I think I, uh, yeah, it was almost exactly three years, because with DCM, I started right around DCM and then stepped down at DCM. Yeah, and then I went to Funny or Die, and I started as news editor, and I was writing and overseeing our topical news articles, and then after a while, I got promoted to senior writer, which is what I currently am. How'd you get the uh, the job as news editor? Um, I think how a lot of comedy jobs work is that you will, you know, you've done comedy for a long time, and then some of your comedy friends you've worked with will get jobs at places, and they'll recommend you, and then hopefully you are able to do the work so you don't get fired. <laughs> uh, so I had some friends who were working at Funny or Die, Zach Poitras and Pat O'Brien, and when the job came up uh, i believe they recommended me and then i applied for it and interviewed and got it did you have to send in like a packet of sketches yep i'd also by that point i also had been submitting uh freelance articles to funnier die and oh, some okay. other ones so they had that was part of it too they had seen my writing through that mm-hmm. um but then i had yeah i like put together a kind of a packet type thing so, uh, Funnier Die, they're known for the videos, but they also have like all, like so much articles. Yeah, articles and then just like standalone images. And mm-hmm. we do a lot of branded stuff too. Yeah. How would you, what would you say is like Funnier Die's like voice? Like, what's like the unique voice of Funnier Die compared to somewhere else on the internet? Yeah, I, I still think like, so Funnier Die started with the landlord. Uh, so the, that old Will Ferrell, Adam McKay sketch with Pearl, the tiny baby saying, aggressive things and swearing <laughs> to her uh, tenant, Will Farrell. So think like irreverent celebrity video, celebrity-driven mm. irreverent video is kind of the core of it, um, just going back to that. Uh, Funny or Die also has, a, has always had a political uh, edge. Um, Adam McKay is an outspoken political person, so he, you know, he, and Will Farrell too, with uh, George W. Bush impressions, you know, going back all that way. So that's also not being afraid to kind of uh, weigh in with satire or political comedy. Uh, and I know the L.A. branch uh, is pretty big, but what's the New York branch like? A funnier day? Yeah. So the, why I now live in L.A. is because they closed the New York oh, branch. Okay. Yeah. So in um, the New York branch was always smaller. There were maybe like... Uh, 15 of us or something like that when when we uh, last December we got the word that they were closing the New York branch but if we wanted to keep our jobs we could but we had to move to LA so like a month later living in LA it was a very quick (laughs) quick life change (laughs) Uh, so it was always like a smaller kind of yeah, always more of like a, a scrappier crew Yeah, that they, they had just in case. I think part of it was like they had a sales team there, and they still do have a sales office in New York um, for the branded stuff we do. And then it was also like just in case some celebrity was like, hey, they want to do a funnier Die video, but they're only in New York for three days for a press tour. So it was like good to have an office there so we could um, meet those requests for the, the celebs not in L.A., uh, now that you're in LA, what do you like? Do you see like as it like major differences between the two places you were? Yeah, I I really love LA so far. I love New York. I was there for about a decade. Um, I'm from Colorado originally. LA being in California feels a little bit closer to a Colorado vibe. Yeah, um, just a bit more outdoorsy and sunshine and 
uh, going on hikes and all that stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I love it so far. Uh, and specifically with like the funnier die offices, is it like way different? Yeah, it's different. So in, in the <laughs> the New York office always had a little bit of the feeling of like the like the adults weren't around. Yeah. And so I think in a good way because I think we would do. It was much more like in the morning we would have a an idea for a sketch. We would like I would grab a camera. We would go shoot it and then edit it, edit it and it would be like zero budget and we would put it out uh, and that was like hit or miss with if those were how they how they worked whereas in LA it's just a bit more polished like we have a, a whole production team and you know we have a slate board where uh, sketches get greenlit and then assigned producers and it just uh, takes a lot longer and then we go out to we try to cast it and so it's a um, it's just a more polished process which which has the end result of a ultimately a higher production value product but then you lose some of those like scrappier ideas that maybe in the past we would have just gone out and made uh and and you started out writing articles but now you do both videos and articles what are like the major differences in writing like in, in ideas for an article versus a video it's um one thing it's a it's a good reminder to be like well why is this why is this a video instead of just an article or instead mm. of just a tweet? So what's something that we can do that's visually interesting or to, you know, to, to be like highfalutin about it? Like what's the cinematic storytelling we can do? So I think like at the extreme level, like a filmmaker like Edgar Wright is a great example of he's not just doing a medium shot of two actors talking and improvising. He's trying to use like, the visual medium of film to make his jokes uh, or to make comedy. So whenever possible, when writing a sketch, it's like, okay, well, why is this a sketch instead of just an article or instead of just a tweet? So how can we uh, do something visually interesting with it? Mm, interesting. Uh, so what's an average day like at Funnier Die for you? We, uh, we go in in the morning and then we have a pitch meeting a few days a week. We, we're emailing right away. Like as soon as people start waking up, we, um, We'll have like, like already an email thread going like, okay, well, Trump said this or, you know, this, this yeah. article is trending on Twitter right now or this, you know, this athlete <laughs> uh, made this mistake or whatever. Like, let's get a video out or let's get an article out on that. Um, I oversee all of our article freelance submissions right now. So I'll go through if we have any freelance submissions, I'll go through those. Or if someone has like a draft of an article, I'll read it and either say this is good to go or... Um, or give feedback, uh, coordinating with our art team for uh, visual assets for the articles. I'll do that. Um, so, for example, like right now, we're doing a funny text message article between uh, Kanye West and the surrogate uh, for their baby, for Kim and Kanye. Uh, okay. They have a surrogate for their baby. Oh, is that is that true? Is that a real thing? That's a real thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so we have a uh, text message between them. So, like, the art department will help stitch together to like make it look like a text once the freelancer turns in the copy for it. So did like the freelancer pitch that idea? Yeah. A lot of the time, most of the time the freelancers will come to us with ideas, but then we'll also sometimes go out to freelancers like, Hey, we're looking for someone to do this. Sometimes like, uh, something on this topic, what ideas do you have? And then sometimes we'll very specifically be like, we like this headline. Do you want to write, write the article? Yeah. When you look at the freelance submissions, what are you looking for? 
Um, the baseline is just like, is this a clear idea? And then is the idea and the headline then executed in the, um, in the article itself? Uh, and then on top of that, are they like a fresh, fun writer? Is this fun to read? And then as a baseline, it, it's just like, are there grammatical mistakes? Like, because right. that we we do a lot of <laughs> high turnaround, and so if a writer, if a writer is making grammatical mistakes or typos or things like that, it just makes my job a little harder. It makes me <laughs> just on a subconscious or maybe a conscious level like a little less inclined to want to work with that person <laughs> in the future. <laughs> So that factors in as well. Uh, but the headline's the most important thing these days with the internet. Um, I feel like er, in the early days of internet press, you could have like a McSweeney's article called like a funny thing about baskets. And then you'd be like, oh, what's this? And then you'd click on it and the article, the writer would be witty. So you'd enjoy it. Right. But now like the headline has to be like the joke or the take. Or a strong, a strong point of view. So yeah, the headline really matters. So start with that. What? What? Um. Yeah. So what do you think makes a good headline? Just having the good take and kind of a short span. Yeah, I think a strong, clear take. Uh, something original. Um. Some usually like I think people in the past maybe were worried about the headline giving away the joke. Right. Whereas, and I think sometimes that can still be the case, but for the most part, I think now it's like the headline tells you what the joke is. So that like people, (laughs) for better or worse, people like feel like they're so busy on the internet and they feel like they're overwhelmed with content. So they need to be told like, if you click on this, this is what you're getting. So you just have to spell it out. Uh, like the click hole article that I always think about is like we asked these 11, 11 librarians who the most Italian customer they ever helped with or something like that and it just it spells out this is exactly what this yeah. article is and then you click it and that's exactly what it is and it's delightful it's because we were talking about sketch 201 and I remember in that class Beth really stressed just having like the title not even be like funny really yeah. just have like exactly what's happening in the sketch yeah yeah and it's a little different for a sketch title right I guess like so so for example we have a great sketch um, that's a community sketch right now on the front page of Funny or Die but that just means we didn't make it internally like people submitted it and then we featured it um, and I think I think the name of the sketch like that they gave it was time traveling dietitian time traveling dietitian and that's like a very sketch name mm-hmm. but the na- the headline that we gave it which is a very internet-y headline is this is why it's hard to eat healthy right or the reason why it's hard to eat healthy so that that difference between like the sketch version of the name versus like the internet <laughs> the internet-y headline version like both work, but one is very like sketchy, <laughs> and then one is very internet-y. And I don't know necessarily which is better, but uh, a lot of times our headlines actually will come from input from the programming department rather than the comedy writers. Oh, so interesting. they're like they're thinking about optimizing what will make people want to click on this. Um, sometimes from a very like data informed perspective, like they know that this sort of headline will get more engagement than this sort of headline is that ever surprising to you when you hear it is yeah and some sometimes we the writers will like push back you know um and it's like literally sometimes it it is like a a question of like well less people will click on it 
and I'm okay with that because I <laughs> hate that headline. <laughs> I would rather it not be that. But in this case, I think it it worked well and didn't sacrifice the integrity of it. It's a very good sketch. Go check it out. Uh, and you're a senior senior writer, and that's your title. What is that? Like, what are your responsibilities from that? Yeah, basically, the senior writer just means, in contrast to just being a writer, is that I oversee the freelance articles and like give people feedback and then if our editor-in-chief or our head writer Zach Poitras our our editor-in-chief Dan Abramson if they're uh, called away and not able to run a pitch meeting I'll be the next the next in line to uh, to run the pitch meeting or something like that but basically it just means rather than only writing my own sketches I'll also give feedback and uh, oversee the freelance process do you have any like uh, any big plans for Funny or Die going forward? <laughs> yeah, um, we're working. I individually have a uh, a new book review series that I'm going to do, kind oh, of inspired cool. my, by my book coming out that um, John Gabris is going to host, and it's called Blazed Book Reviews. So he's going to okay. be kind of play a similar version to himself uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that he does in his High and Mighty podcast, which is a very funny podcast to check out. Um, so he's going to uh, talk to authors about like a book they have coming out. So we're going to uh, the first one will be with me because I have a book coming out called Not Quite a Genius, uh, and we'll, we're going to use that as kind of a test pilot. And then our goal, our hope is that we'll go out to some bigger name authors. So Stephen King, if you're listening, <laughs> we're coming for you. We'd love you to be on the show. Oh man, John Gabris interviewing Stephen. Wouldn't King. that be amazing? That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't wow. you want to see that? Uh, so you wrote on a, on a Go90 show. I did. Called uh, Mr. Student Body President. How did you get that uh, gig? Similarly, in this comedy world, you just you keep working. You'll work, you'll meet people, and those people will get jobs. <laughs> and if they didn't hate you, they might ask you if you want to submit. Um, so that show, that's a Go90 show that was created by Ryan Hunter, who was this old... Uh, comedian who I'd known from the early days of YouTube when I was really into making YouTube videos because he had a, a sketch group called Point Pack and I thought Point Pack was really funny um, and then so I kind of admired him from afar and then he sort of our world sort of merged where he um, started he wanted to do stuff at UCB so I think he submitted a mod packet and I was like oh I know this guy Ryan Hunter and then like through that we got to know each other um, and then just from hanging out he we each learned that we had been student body presidents of our respective high schools growing up so that was just a fact he knew about me so then years later when he sold this show about a student body president it's basically like house of cards set in a high school uh, student government um he remembered that i that i had that experience Mm. so i think he reached out to some people um who had been student body presidents or had been in student government so they could offer their stories and input for the writer's room. Uh, but that having that personal connection, you know, that helps you get in the door. But then I still had to write a packet and still had to interview. And then um, you still try to do a good job so that they ask you back for the second season, which just happened. So I wrote for the first season and then uh, just wrote for the second season, too. What was the packet like for something like this? Usually these days, I feel like a packet a lot of times will be an original pilot. Mm uh-huh. So an original writing uh, submission. So if it's for a narrative TV show right. uh, like this is, uh, or a narrative show, you'll um, you'll submit like a narrative writing sample. So mm-hmm. if it's a half hour comedy, you have your narrative half hour comedy. If it's an hour long drama, narrative hour long drama, original original writing. Um, something like a like The Daily Show or Jimmy yeah. Fallon. Then you'll submit like 
maybe 20 monologue jokes or 10 monologue jokes and then like a desk piece and a segment idea something like that i just wasn't sure for like a go 90 show if they'd ask for like a a 15 minute thing yeah i think they good question i think they did specify that it could have been 15 minutes but that half hour was okay yeah I wonder, yeah, maybe they only read the first 15, first 15 pages. <laughs> uh, what was like the writer's room like for that? It was awesome. It was really fun. Um, Ryan led it, and then um, it was, uh, yeah, we met every day. And a lot of the, our, the process was like um, going through the characters we already had since this was the second season. And then a lot of it was just kind of sharing stories like, well, this happened to me in high school, or I knew this person in high school who did this. Isn't this interesting? And kind of seeing, like, okay, is there anything there that we could build out to apply to one of ours? Um, and then talking about big picture stuff, like, where do we want the season to end? Or what things do we do or not want to have happen? Um, some of it was, like, which... <laughs> we had a few, like, unresolved uh, storylines from the first season. So it was, like, also, okay, how are we going to resolve that? Um, and then, you know, like, just throwing a bunch of stuff up, um, sticky notes up onto the board and then kind of organizing from there and slowly chiseling it away. Uh, then breaking, breaking individual episodes together, um, doing that in the room. And then we mostly outlined in the room together rather than having individuals go outline. Uh, and then individual episodes got assigned to writers. So then you would go write your episode, then come back. We'd do a read-through, give notes, revise, and then do that again. Uh, how many episodes did you get to write? I got to write two. Nice. Two were assigned. Like I think we'll have my name on them. Nice. I think I actually wrote three, but then one of the, one of the ones I wrote, I think, ended up getting cut. So they <laughs> they condensed or like did something else instead. Uh, and this is the first uh, narrative job you've had. Is that something you'd like to keep doing in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I loved it. It, um, yeah, it's like one of the as soon as it started. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. Yeah. I love Funny or Die. I really, I love working there. It's a great job. But yeah, specifically like narrative, a narrative show. As I get older, I also I love comedy, but I'm also like. I would write for a drama show yeah. in a second. Like, <laughs> love comedy, but really like story. And when I think about the the shows that I watch and love and that I talk about, I think are more and more not comedies, but, you know, dramas or narrative shows. Still love comedy. Uh, but, yeah, any sort of narrative show I'd love to write for. Yeah, yeah I find that most comedy people don't watch that much comedy. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it makes sense. But uh, And you've got a book coming out. Uh, by the time people hear this, it will have just come out. Ooh, exciting. The future. Yeah. Uh, called Not Quite a Genius. Not Quite a Genius. Uh, how do you uh, get started on the book? Yeah, so I'd been writing short comedy pieces basically since high school, um, starting with, uh, so the name of, we were the Evergreen Cougars, so the name of the paper was The Claw, and then once a year we did that satire issue, which we called, get this, The Flaw. Oh, very good. Thank you. Uh, and so... I get my uh, satire, I was on a satire newspaper in college, and the regular newspaper is called The Chronicle, and we called ours The Barnacle. The Barnacle? Yeah. <laughs> what was your school mascot? Uh... Was it? Oh, it was a bobcat. Bo- okay, so not not a <laughs> It's just chronicle barnacle. I like it. That's yeah. even better. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started writing short comedy pieces in high school with that. In college, like I uh, basically trying to get onto the lampoon was I 
wrote a bunch of pieces and never got on, but it was useful for just generating material. Some of which I think I developed and uh, went on to be things I used later. Um, and then over the course of my twenties, uh, submitting to the New Yorker, submitting to McSweeney's, submitting to College Humor, Funny or Die, like anywhere online that published comedy pros, I would try to submit to. Um, I think the New Yorker, I, I submitted to like blind, just blind submissions through the online uploader like 20 or 30 times, maybe 25 times before I got one. Um, McSweeney's similarly like low <laughs> hit percentage at first, but just like kept doing that. And then through doing that also had like just generated a lot of material. Um, and then maybe three years ago, three or four years ago, I've read, I've read all of like Simon Rich's humor collections and I've read, um, uh, a lot of, uh, every, anytime like a new humor collection comes out, I try to read it. And I read one by BJ Novak called one more thing. Uh, and for some reason that one I especially really loved and it got me thinking like, huh, I've, I bet I've written the first thought was like, I've just written enough to write a book. I don't know if it's good enough, but I went through and in a word doc, or first I counted how many words were in BJ Novak's book, which I'm sure that information was available online somewhere, but instead of, I counted, I counted how many were on like five pages and then I like oh, mu- okay. multiplied out. I was like, I bet that'll okay. be about, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, okay, so that's how many words. And then I put all, everything I'd written that didn't suck. So I deleted some stuff, but I put everything I'd written that I at least felt okay about into a word doc. And I looked at how many words it was, and I was like, okay, I've written enough words. I don't know if they're good enough, but I've at least written enough. <laughs> so I sent that as a manuscript to my manager and said, hey, I'd like to, is there any way we could try to publish this as a book? And he said, I'll reach out to some book agents. I think we reached out to like 10 book agents. None of them were interested except for one. Uh, that one book agent then gave me feedback, and we worked on it for about half a year. And then submitted it to, I think, 14 publishers. None of them were interested except for one, but that's all it took. So then Simon & Schuster decided to buy it. Uh, And then it was supposed to come out like a year ago, but then with the election, I think their slate got filled with a lot of political books Mm. and history books and things that were more of the zeitgeist. So this got pushed a year. Um, And during that time, so initially it was only humor pieces, just like your New Yorker Daily Shouts type pieces. Uh, But then the editor, Ben Lonin at Simon & Schuster, my editor, pushed me to write some first-person essays, uh, which I hadn't really done before. Um, So there's a few of those in the book as well. Interesting. So when you you do the – when you get the manuscript and you get somebody interested in it, are you thinking, okay, uh, I'm going to just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like use this stuff. Or are you thinking, okay, now I got to uh, get to work and add more stuff into there? Yeah, I wasn't sure. I thought, I think I thought it would just be that stuff. Uh, but then, then it was like the, the, the editor, w- you know, would tell me not crazy about this piece. I'd rather mm-hmm. if I would rather replace it with something else. So sometimes it was going back to stuff I'd already written and sending that instead, or sometimes it was generating new material. Um, so the the end product that will be in stores on August 8th, I bet is only like 20% the same as the first manuscript that I sent. So it's a lot, a lot has been added since then, which is funny to me. So has it, has it changed like wildly from draft to draft? 
Um, more like cutting pieces and putting in new pieces. I see. So yeah. like the pieces that have remained are pretty similar to what they've always been. Um, with like minor tweaks, but yeah, more like substituting in entirely new pieces. How fast was like the process in like working with like in the editor and working that way? Um, it, it was slow. It was a yeah. very slow process. Yeah. I think part of it is that I'm, you know, I'm a first time author. So I think, and this is a non topical <laughs> humor collection. Right. So there is no urgency. <laughs> uh, so I, w- I think I was on the bottom of the totem pole in terms of like when <laughs> feedback would come back. Uh, so it, it took a while. Yeah. It was like a year and a half, two year process from when we first turned in the first manuscript to like the end of it. And so, uh, you said this was to come out last year. Have you made any like changes since then to the book? Put in a few new pieces since then. Yeah. yeah which I actually, um, in the end, I'm glad that I got more time to, to keep working on it, but it is kind of maddening after a while. Cause you could always keep working right. on it. And in fact, well, I don't know if I should say this, but the, um, there's one essay in particular that I have since, even though it's like too late to change it, I have revised it. So in my mind, I have the, like the true version of this one essay is not the essay that's in the book. Oh man. Um, so I don't know if like, if, if it ever did well enough to get a second printing, I would argue to put in this revised <laughs> it's only it basically just has a different intro and a different conclusion oh, interesting. Uh, and then otherwise is the same uh, i won't say which one so you can <laughs> you can suspect that they're all bad uh so it's a collection of essays so did you have to like change um some material because it overlapped with other stuff or were there essays yes. yeah. yeah yeah so it was some like like so by chance it was like oh i have three comedy pieces about soap that's probably too many i don't (laughs) don't need three of them uh or like like i had a personal essay about reality tv and then i also had a comedy piece about reality tv and it was it was like a debate of is that too much like should Mm. we and i wanted to keep them both in so we did but they're like one's in the first part of the book and one's in the last part of the book so we separated them so some of it was just thinking about the order um or like uh, these are both list pieces. Let's not put them next to each other. So a lot of it was just ordering. And then sometimes the actual overlap, like, yeah, you don't need this many soap jokes. <laughs> did, did you spend a lot of time thinking about the order? I did. Yeah, yeah. actually. Yeah. And, um, it's also, it's like somewhat arbitrarily broken up into parts, but also thought a lot about that. And in my mind, there was one theme or I had like a, th- uh, different themes for all the parts in the, in an original organization, uh, that then I abandoned at one point and completely changed. And now I have like, they're very, I don't know if anyone else will notice the like unifying themes, but to me, each part has a theme. Um, yeah. Uh, what's like surprised you about like the process of writing a book? Uh, how long it's taken. Yeah. Um, I've really loved it though. And I, early on in the process, I pretty much decided to take every single note that I was given from the editor. I think I, he's, first of all, he's been great, Ben Lonin. And I just decided to trust his expertise. Like he's been in the book business a lot longer than me. Um, Cause sometimes, you know, you can be a sensitive comedy writer and if he doesn't like a joke, my first reaction would to be like, Oh, well he just doesn't get the joke or like yeah. a, a, a very common thing would be like, <laughs> uh, 
this is bad writing. And I'd be like, well, yes, but it's bad writing intentionally. <laughs> That's what's funny. Like, so I think it's funny to repeat things or be repetitive okay. um, or like to be overly specific with describing something mm. like that's very funny to me. And so a constant back and forth was like, well, this is bad writing. And I'm like, yes, I know, but on purpose. But I think pretty much always I would defer to him and make the change. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine this book is like, gonna be like it's like 100 percent your voice 100 percent your stuff which is like completely different from like say working in tv or right. film uh would you say that's definitely true and like how do you i don't know when you're working on like stuff like that how do you make that happen yeah i think i think that that's true for the most part um and that's one of the you know beautiful things about tv or film is that ideally it's a collaboration you know unless you're like an auteur like hitchcock where you get all the credit i think hopefully yeah it's like a, a team effort um and i think you just have to be okay with that but even you know even like what i was just saying with the with the writing like even that, like I got all that feedback from yeah. my editor. So it's not just my voice. It's, it's his Im- impact on that. And then every single humor piece or some of the pieces were originally published elsewhere. Like were originally published in the New Yorker or McSweeney's or funnier die. And in, in, e- in each of those cases, I would get feedback from that editor, right. you know, so yeah. they each have their stamp on little parts too. Um, and so, uh, and like all the people that I've read it for or shared it with my friends, um, so even even that it's not completely uh an isolated thing like i went into a cave and then you know etched this into stone and came out and said this is it uh yeah so even this does have um is shaped by other people would you say this is like the favorite thing you've done yes yeah yeah yeah, which is uh it's exciting um because I've been working on it in some ways for three years and in some ways for like 10 years because I've been writing, it's like humor pieces I've been writing for the last decade I'll put into this. Um, yeah, so I'm proud of it. I'm also very scared. I'm scared it's not good. I'm scared everyone's going to hate it. <laughs> but mostly, I say that kind of like half joking. But I'm also excited just to be done with this to free up some creative space in my brain so I can move on to the next project. Um, but yeah, it's been been a trip. What advice would you give to somebody writing uh, comedic essays? Just keep doing it. You got to write a million of them. Um, there's going to be a lot of rejection with submitting to places. Don't be discouraged. Uh, take the notes from your editors once you get to that stage where you're getting notes. Uh, yeah, and just keep doing it. I think um, it's prob- probably everyone, if you're listening to a podcast on a, a comedy podcast on writing, on comedy <laughs> writing, You've probably already read Stephen King's On Writing because uh, you're obsessed with this stuff. But if you haven't, I'd say read that. It's my favorite thing that I've read on the craft. He talks about he had like this nail above his writing desk where he would put the rejection right. slips. And it got like so thick that it was pushing back on the nail until he finally you like get the you, you get just the form rejections. And this is true in paper or online where either you don't hear it all or it's just the forum rejection. And then the next step up isn't that you get accepted, but that you get the rejection with a personal touch. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, th- there's some funny stuff in this one. Still not for us, but keep writing. And then that's, you're like, oh my gosh, great. They said no, but in a nice way. Uh, so that's like the next step. Uh, so yeah, you just gotta, you gotta do it a bunch. Uh, like Simon Rich, I think he writes for like an hour every day and mm. he has for his whole life and that's why he's so good. Uh, okay, so we're gonna wrap up with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote. So this is a sketch idea. Oh, cool. Uh, 
All right. Oh, I, uh, I just remembered what this was. Okay. <laughs> uh, so an announcer says, like, here is, um, like, J- Jack Harmon to give a presentation on um, little-known facts about the Oscars. And then, so he comes out, he does, like, a really brief intro. And then, like, the first fact is, like, uh, you know, during the war, the Oscars were made of this, like, thing. And it's like, whatever. And then there's, like, another one between, and then he's like, uh, you know, kind of interesting interesting story. Uh, recently, the, the Best Picture Oscar, there was, like, a little bit of a snafu. And I guess... The joke is that he just keeps telling the story in immense detail, uh, as if no one's ever heard it before, but, like, obviously everyone's heard it before. Yeah, that's great. About the... The uh, best picture thing, yeah. Yeah, with La La Land and... Moonlight, yeah. Moonlight, yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that's that. That's it. That's yeah, all I got. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, the... Um, at first, when you... It was just the little-known Oscar facts. Like, that's a... That's our bread and butter for an article. Like we do things like that all the time. Oh, of like right. little known facts about the Super Bowl. But then those pieces are tough because basically it's just like as strong as each individual joke right. is. But then having that added twist of the overly detailed about the thing that no one's heard of, but of course everyone has. Yeah. That's really funny. I like that a lot. Okay, yeah, cool. I think that'd be great. Yeah, and the guy's like especially if he's like really earnestly like guys, it was crazy. Like <laughs> yeah. we, he said the wrong name. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. had, you had to have been there. <laughs> uh, I'm actually doing this tonight. Oh, great. Yeah. So, Where at? Uh, at the pack. You know the pack? Cool. It's on uh, Santa oh, Monica. But this will come out in the future. So you, so you did this it. in the past. Yeah. Maybe someone listening will have seen it. I'll record the intro later and maybe I'll say how it goes. Oh, good, good. You yeah. should. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so your book, Not Quite Genius, comes out August 8th. This will come out August 9th. Ooh. So go buy it. Yes, please, everyone. Buy it. Bye. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. <laughs> Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.